did want to take this opportunity at the front end of the teaching this morning and uh, just acknowledge something that uh, I wrote in the weekly email this week that has been obviously all over the news, which um, is just the uh, the response to the horrible events in Atlanta and uh, both what those speak to um, just the fears of those uh, particularly in the Asian and Asian American community, but also how it points to a much larger theme. Right? We can be quick in these circumstances to say, well, what are the details of that specific incident? And uh, what that does is it really ignores the fact that, uh, that a moment like that that gets national attention often strikes a chord because of what's uh, happening that isn't more widely seen and understood on a more ongoing basis. And in talking to many of you, in talking to uh, a few Asian American pastors who are friends of mine. I know that this has been a heavy week where those events uh, have just, yeah, just reminded us of the, the fact that this nation continues to struggle with racism and racial violence and uh, that that has been particularly on the rise in that community uh, this year in the midst of COVID. And uh, just to say that we as a church, right, even as Rich was saying before, this is why we're committed to breaking barriers because um, there's real barriers here. There's, there's hateful barriers here that we believe that the church is not only called to not do that, but to actually uh, break those barriers to encounter Jesus and be a community of love and reconciliation and justice that shows a different way to the world. And so uh, I, as a pastor, want to say to the Asians and Asian Americans, which we have many of in our church, many of whom are part of this church family. Uh, you are not invisible to us. We see you. We love you. We mourn. We lament with you. Uh, pastor Yukon Chu, who is the pastor of Ethnos Church, who's been a great personal friend to me. Uh, our churches share a, a lot of the same heart and vision. Yukon has actually been super helpful to Manoj and Allison in helping us get connected to different opportunities in the community. Yukon uh, reached out to me two days ago and just invited me uh, personally and invited our church to participate in a rally that's going on today in Highland Park. Um, it's at 3 o'clock, Highland Park, Raritan Ave, uh, between Adelaide and Lincoln, for those of you who know where that is. Uh, if you need those details, just go to Instagram or Facebook or whatever and look up Ethnos, E-T-H-N-O-S, Ethnos Church. Um, it's, it's likely their first banner there. Uh, this is just a time to, to say that uh, we see what's going on. We stand with those who are hurting, with those who are in fear right now, and especially as the people of God. Um, we are lamenters. That is what we are called to do. And this is a season of lament for many of our brothers and sisters. Uh, and so I'll be there. Um, I plan to, to stand along with them. And it, yeah, it, it'd be great to, to see many from our church as well. With that said, uh, let's jump into the text this morning. We don't have much time, so this is going to be uh, a, a quick uh, overview of this, this very important text. Last week, Jalen did a great job of leading us through how the author of Hebrews moves to the example of Moses and says, uh, as Jalen said, Moses is great, but there's actually a far superior one, a far superior leader and freer of the people of God, namely the Lord Jesus himself. And basically what we now have and what Emily just read 
is that the author moves from the positive example of, of Moses, and particularly the positive example par excellence of Jesus, into a negative example, and warns us. This is the first of many, many, many warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And where he takes us, in, starting in verse 7, is to Psalm 95. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, pause real quick, Notice that the author of Hebrews believes that the word of God is actually spoken by the Holy Spirit. It is divinely breathed, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, right? Where this is something that comes from the scriptures themselves, that, that there is a uniqueness, a, a unique authority of the word of God. These are the very words of God, as the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion talk about what that means in one second. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Psalm 95 is a reflection on the events of uh, that basically bracket Hebrews experience uh, or the people of God, Israel's experience in the wilderness. And there's these two moments, uh, one of which, hang on, finding my notes here, one of which takes place in Exodus 17, the other of which is in Numbers 20. So uh, this testing in the wilderness, these are actually places you, you could uh, translate the rebellion here and where they put God to the test as these places, Meribah and Massa. Uh, that actually mean those two words, that, that mean testing, that mean contention with God, the testing of God. And uh, in, in the first one, in Exodus 17, the people who have been brought out of slavery in Egypt, even if you're not familiar, deeply familiar with the scripture, you probably know the story, God goes and rescues, let my people go, and then he saves them and he brings them through the Red Sea. Well, now the people are journeying toward promised land, having been rescued, and they complain to their leader, Moses, and say, what are we doing out here? Why are we in the wilderness? Why is this suddenly so uncomfortable and difficult? And they say, we're starving and we're thirsty. And Moses goes to God. He says, God, what do I do with this? God says, speak to a rock and I'll pour forth water from it. Moses does that. He speaks to a rock, pours forth water. People praise God. There's provision there. On the other, so now this is... Uh, Scholars disagree how, how long afterwards, but sometimes afterwards. Now the people are standing right on the edge of the promised land. Their journey is almost over, and they send spies into land and things. And, and while all this is happening, while they're standing on the edge of what God has promised for them, once again, they complain. They say, here we are. We're starving again. We're thirsty again. We've been in the wilderness for so long. And they say, we need provision they have clearly forgotten the provision that God gave them at the beginning of the journey. Moses goes back to God. God says, speak to the rock again. Moses, in his anger, actually strikes the rock this time. And not only do the people of God, but Moses himself are told that you will not enter the promised land because of your disobedience, because you were not faithful in the wilderness. And so Psalm 95, which is now picked up by the author of Hebrews, is meant to be a warning to us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like that generation. Don't be like those who harden their hearts. That's the language that's talked about here. Hardening of the heart. Uh, th this idea of hardening, to me, what comes to mind is often after Sundays, my little guy, my seven-year-old there, Kama, uh, and I go to, there's a nice wave for the people, uh, 
we go and we get bagels. That's kind of our thing. The other two members of our family are gluten-free, so we do bagels on Sunday, you know? And there's nothing quite like, this is a very Jersey thing, there's nothing quite like a nice, fresh out-of-the-oven bagel, right? It comes out, it's nice and hot. I'm making you all hungry now. Um, and, and what is it? It's, it's got that nice texture to it, right? It's got that nice uh, uh, give to it. You can almost feel the hot air in the middle. Are you getting hungry yet, right? A couple weeks ago, uh, they give these, these bagels to you in one of those brown bags, uh, right? You get a baker's dozen, and they give it to you in one of those brown bags. Well, I left the brown bag out. What you actually do is you eat them. Uh, you leave them out for about a day or two because they're going to maintain that, that nice consistency. And then what do you do? You put them in a bag, and you throw them in the freezer. You preserve them. You get them out, and then your only option is to toast them. That's just what you do with bagels, people. But I had left them out. I had forgotten about them. And I don't know if you've ever left a bagel out for like a week, but what happens to them? They literally become like hockey. It was hilarious. We were like dropping them on the ground and just this enormous thud on the ground. When I think of hardening, that's the image that comes to mind. And this is something the author is telling us that can happen to the human heart. In other words, when, when not preserved, when not tended to, when not guarded in the way that it needs to be guarded, when not cared for, when left to its own devices, the, the, the bagel of our heart does not maintain its consistency. It hardens. And what a fearful thing it would be for the sound of our hearts to be a thud against the word of God, to be a thud against the righteousness of God, to be a thud against the warnings of other people. And yet the author is saying that this, which happened to the people of God in the Old Testament, is no less a danger to us now. Here's what Hebrews is going to do. It is going to consistently mess with our oversimplified theologies of easy conversionism, of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German theologian, called cheap grace. Right? Some of us grew up in traditions with overly simplified sayings like, once saved, always saved. And so we believe if we prayed the prayer in fourth grade that we are good to go forever no matter what happens beyond that. The author of Hebrews is screaming to those of us who would be given to that kind of cheap grace, that kind of, well, I did it once, so I must be good. And it's saying, be careful that your heart is not being hardened. Now he's going to go into more specifics about how the heart is hardened. What he specifically says, verse 12, is take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Rather, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened, there's that word, by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How does, one get, how does one's heart get hardened? It's hardened when we actually believe the lies that sin constantly speaks over us. This word that's used here for deceitfulness is a word that, that is related to the idea of seduction of being drawn away. Notice the amount of language that the author is putting into this, that the people of God in verse 10 go astray. The people of God in verse 12 are tempted to fall away. This is what hardening, he's, he's trying to use different images here of what it looks like to slowly wander. Very few massive falls in the life of the Christian come overnight. They are the steady giving in. They are the steady 
overlooking certain boundaries. They are the steady being alone and silent about our struggles that over time create that hardening, that over time make us not pliable to the word of God, that make us apathetic towards the things that we are hearing. And the author is telling us this is a dangerous thing, and yet it so often starts with small decisions. I know um, like five years late on this, but Sarah and I have just started watching The Crown. How many of you here at 27 watch The Crown? Okay, all right, this isn't completely going over your head. I don't know how I feel about the royal family, uh, especially of late, right? Like, I don't know. But The Crown, pretty good show. But there's this speech in The Crown where one of, like, the uh, Lanciels, who's, like, the chief of staff, that's probably not what he's called, um, probably some weird English thing that he's called, but uh, he's basically the chief of staff, and he's talking to the new queen. And she, uh, she, all she wants, every decision is made for her, everything is dictated to her. The only thing that she wants is she wants her personal secretary to not be the guy who's technically next in line. She wants it to be the next guy in line who she's more familiar with. I don't know if you remember this. And the guy has this speech where he says, this is exactly what your uncle did. Now, her uncle was a guy who abdicated the throne, who did all this crazy stuff, who violated all these different kinds of things. She's like, whoa, whoa, how is that a comparison? All that my uncle did versus this small, this small thing that I want to do. And he gives her this long speech and he says, that's where the rot begins. Because once you have violated one protocol, it becomes easier to violate the next one. And suddenly that's spinning out of control. Now make what you will. We actually are rooting against this guy in the crown. But there is something, as I was looking at this text this week, that I was like, there is something so true about the human heart that that speech gets to. That the rot does not start with some massive decision to say, I'm jumping into adultery. I'm jumping into uh, uh, false practices at work. I'm I'm jumping into anger and harshness towards my children constantly. No, no, no. These are small decisions. And so often, once one boundary has been violated, the next one can and the next one can. And suddenly we find ourselves doing things that we can never imagine ourselves doing, right? The, the people, when these massive moral failures come out, and we've had far too many of them of late, and we say, how could that have happened to that person? You know who I imagine is also saying that? That person is saying, I could have never imagined myself ending up here. And yet what so often happens in those cases is it's not a one-time thing. It's not a one mistake. It's not a sudden overnight thing. It's the steady progress. It's the steady rot towards a hardness of heart. He says, don't do this. Do you see what the solution to this is? It's so beautiful here. First of all, in verse 12, he says, take care, brothers. Family of God, brothers and sisters, take care, family, that this not happen among you, not just in you individually. Feel the responsibility for this not to happen among you. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is, as it is called today, that none of you may experience this hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What he's getting at here, and I, I love this repetition of this idea of today, because here's what the scriptures say, is that every day the opportunity for repentance presents itself to the follower of Jesus. Every day is the day to confess. Every day is the day to go to a brother and sister and say, I want to see this stop in your life. I was talking about this 
this week uh, with, with my wife, which is one of the lies that we can believe when we are, when we are deep into sin is that the process, the, the length of time, the secrecy, the darkness that led to us being ending up in this place, that the journey out of it will be equally as difficult, will be equally as long and treacherous. And we say, there's no turning back now. I once heard someone say, I can't trace back where it was, but this person said that there is a relentlessness that God has in pursuit of his people that is not matched by the enemy. Right? The, we were just in the letter of James, and in the letter of James it says this. It says what? It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and what? He'll come at you and he'll keep coming and he's going to do everything he can. No, you know what it says? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is not relentless. God is. And so that thing in you, because here's the reality. Do you know how your heart is not hardened by sin? Paradoxically, it's that you grieve over it. It's that you hate it. It's that you constantly are saying, why won't this thing leave my life? Follower of Jesus, realize your heart is still soft if that's where you are. The dangerous thing is when we say, ah, and this happens, Jacob Swell. This has happened. This is happening in our community. That there is a point that the human heart reaches where it says, I'm just in too far. And then that hardness comes. And so while your heart is still soft, while you perceive that your brother or sister's heart is still soft, would you exhort them? Would you warn them and pull them out of this? Because today is the day of repentance. Because Jesus is always ready and willing. And yeah, there might be a process of repentance. There might be pain on the other side of it. But there is also softness of heart. In other words, you will come back to life like a heart that was once not beating and now is a heart of flesh. Again, this is part of the promise of the new covenant is that our hearts of stone can yet become hearts of flesh. If we will see today as the day of repentance. Today, if you hear his voice, just in case we didn't get it, he says in verse 15, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Instead, verse before, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of the coolest things that Hebrews says, let me tell you why. First of all, I don't like to often do this, but I quibble a bit with the, and most commentators do, with the translation here. Original confidence, it's fine. It doesn't quite get at what's being said here. The little translation here is... For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our, really what's said here is the beginning of substance, which is weird, which is why it's not in there, right? Like if, if you or I just read that, we'd be like, what does that mean? Holding firm, our, our beginning of substance. Here's what this is saying, is first of all, what this whole text, what Psalm 95, what the author pulling from Psalm 95 is saying is, is that we do not live in promised land. I've said it before, I'll say it again in Hebrews. We are in the wilderness. In other words, follower of Jesus, the hard, the, the, the difficulty of following Jesus is acknowledged here. We ain't in promised land. Where, where do we stand? We stand precisely where the people of God did when they complained to Moses. 
We have experienced salvation. We have been rescued. We have been freed from our slavery to sin. And yet, we await the fullness of stepping into what God has promised. Which the author of Hebrews says, that means that we stand in a difficult place. We stand in a place where perseverance is needed. We stand in a place where attentiveness to our heart is needed. Now, here's the important thing. Hear the wording here. We do not, having been saved, then somehow, after the fact, earn our salvation. Please hear that. All that we do in preserving, all we got to do is keep a heart of flesh. All we got to do is not harden ourselves. Do you hear that? That's the only act of volition that we are warned not to take. It doesn't say, never ever sin again, Christian, or else Jesus is going to get really, really mad and you're not going to get in. It says, don't harden your heart. Just, just stay soft enough because here's what hardens the heart. It's sin. The hardest thing to per- persevere through often for the Christian is not the difficulties of life, as hard as they are. It's not the pain and suffering of it. It's often persevering through our own sinfulness. And we have one command here, just don't harden. Because here's what's happened to you, follower of Jesus. You have been rescued. You have become a partaker with Christ. Your freedom is real. And here's what you have. You have the beginning of the substance of that. You have a taste of that here and now. You have access to the Father. You can pray and actually sense Him responding. You have the Spirit of God bringing conviction where there was only apathy before. You have the the word of God that is active in your heart and that changes you and convicts you now. You have God himself bringing life where there was once only death. You have a family around you that cares for you simply because you are in Jesus like they are. There's no other reason why we would be in community together. But all this is the beginning of the substance. But if you can see that it's the beginning of something far greater it's, it's, the, it's the hors d'oeuvres. It's the appetizers of what awaits us. If you can hold firm to that and say something has changed. I do believe that I'm not now who I used to be. I do believe that things are different in my life. And that's the promise that if I simply maintain a heart of flesh, continue in repentance, I will step into that fullness one day. I will not be like the generation that was denied access because they complained. Because here's... Here's the crazy thing that the people of God do in these stories. Do you know what they say? Not only do they say, we're hungry and thirsty out here in the wilderness, they take it a step further and they say, we would rather you left us back in Egypt because at least we were well fed there. That is the language of a hardened heart. And yet... Is that not the language of a heart that is willing to cross that boundary and then that boundary, which says, but this is so hard. Don't I deserve a little bit of what I tasted in my old life? Don't I deserve a little bit of how the rest of the world defines the good life? And to do that is to to do the irrational thing, the insane thing that the people of God did, where it's, you were well-fed, but you were in chains. You were enslaved. Your identity was taken from you in that place. You had no hope of a future. Your future was utterly cut off. And now you have the beginning of substance. And I know it's the beginning. And I know it's wilderness. And I know it's hard. 
But don't go back. That's not where freedom is found. He says, for who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's like, who was it? Was it non-believers? Was it people unassociated with God? Was it people who hadn't seen the mighty acts of God? Was it people who were not saved and freed by him? No, it was that generation that wanted to go back hard in their hearts and never got to the promised land. Therefore, while the promise, first two verses in, in chapter four, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, praise God that it does. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. That's <laughs> it's so often the case. What's the solution here? It's the gospel. It's believing and holding fast to the gospel. They received good news that they had been freed and been made the firstborn children of God but it was not united with faith. And so they did not enter in. It's saying now we have, and this is a whole argument of Hebrews, we have far better news than even the people of Israel had post-Exodus. Our freedom is a far greater freedom. Our future is a far more glorious future than entering into a specific place. It is nothing less than the full presence of God in face-to-face relationship that awaits us. Here's what's so important to understand about part of the good news, though, is you have been freed from sin. You have been freed from slavery to sin. And it is precisely when we no longer take that seriously, when we no longer tremble at that truth, that we find ourselves beginning to give ourselves to the rot of the deceitfulness of sin. If you say to a child their entire life, you will be punished if you touch the stove, and that's all you ever say, that stove will begin to look more and more attractive to them because they will say, what is being withheld from me by this mystical, magical, amazing thing? And why is it that there has to be punishment if I don't go there? If you don't explain to that child, the worst punishment that you could get is that I didn't care about whether or not you touched the stove, that I am actually preserving your well-being, I'm preserving your health, I may be preserving your life by keeping you away from that. You have withheld the full knowledge of what that saving warning is achieving with them. And this is what maturity of faith looks like. It looks like us no longer most fearing the penalty for our sin, God's punishment for our sin. It looks like us growing up to say, the stove is hot and that's why I don't touch it. If all you ever do is fear the punishment for sin, if that is the only motivation and you never see that, no, sin itself, it is so glorious that we now have the opportunity to not walk in sin. And that is the great blessing. It's not the curse of following Jesus. It's not the big downer. It's not the big cosmic killjoy that now we have to obey. This rest that's being spoken of here, we think of it as taking a nice nap in the spirit or something. No, no, no. What rest is, I don't have time. We'll do it in another sermon. But let me just say, this rest in the scriptures is far less about chilling taking a break from the hard hard stuff and it is far more a call it a mode of existence 
that God himself is in, having fully accomplished what he intended to accomplish in the creation. He himself rests. Now, he is actually still working. In other words, what rest is being spoken about here is the world rightly ordered, the world as it should be. We, the people of God, under God's authority, walking joyfully in obedience with him. In other words, this is what it's saying. You're in the wilderness. It's really hard, but the only true rest for your soul actually will come in disobedience or in in obedience. This is why... This is why disobedience so often looks in in the life of both faith and in the life outside of faith like restlessness, like a constant striving, like a I'm never fully satisfied because satisfaction, as fleeting as it is, as beginning of substance as it is, that obedience is the only rest that your soul will truly experience this side of the kingdom in its fullness. Do you hear the invitation in that? Do you hear how different that is? Then God withholds all the fun stuff from me so that I can prove that I really, really want to go to heaven one day? That is to so minimize the good news. When Jesus was splayed out on the cross, he bore your sin. And if you ever, if I ever get tired of standing in awe at the reality that he took the great enemy of my soul, that he became it, so that I could go free, such that I could have a choice to make today the day of repentance, to actually call out sin in my own heart and in the heart of others and expect God to be gracious on the other side of that repentance. We've missed the true beauty of what it looks like. And here's the reality that just as Jesus' story did not end with him bearing sin, so our stories do not end. Amazingly, with falling in the wilderness, that so long as we maintain, as so long as we set our eyes on Jesus and do it today, don't wait another day, do it today, follower of Jesus, do it today, one who is on the brink of giving him your life, we will enter that rest. It remains. It's still a promise to imperfect people like us. And the requirement is not perfection. It's remaining malleable. It's remaining soft. Even when that softness feels like bitterness feels like bitter weeping for our sin. You're still alive, Christian. You're not hardened yet. So repent today. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that where we need to heed this call that we would, that we would not stop our ears to it, that we would not, as you say of the people of Israel, be stiff-necked. God, where there is hardness of heart, I pray that you by your spirit would, would make it a heart of flesh. And God, thank you even for this meal that we're about to partake that invites us into that kind of repentance and that it's always available, that it's as available today as it's ever been. Help us to step into it because we see your beauty, because we hear behind that invitation your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to do communion now. What a beautiful thing to do, even in light of this passage. Um, Apostle Paul says that we are to prepare our hearts to take this meal. And so I do just want to give you, Mike, maybe you could play a little bit. Uh, I do just want to give you a minute or